0: I'd like to welcome all of you to the Geddes W. Hansen Lecture this afternoon. This lectureship was established in 2002 by the Association of Black Seminarians in honor of Dr. Geddes Hansen, the Charlotte W. Newcomb Professor of Congregational Ministry Emeritus. Dr. Hansen served on the faculty of our seminary from 1969 until his retirement in 2009. In those 40 years, he taught and mentored thousands of students. He shaped the ministries of generations of people not only through his courses and lectures, but more importantly, through his deep personal investment in the lives and the callings of his students. Guy and his wife Carrie are famous for their extraordinary hospitality and for the way that they opened their home to seminary students gathering many around their dinner table, forming deep relationships with these students. We're fortunate to have one of their former students with us today as our lecturer, the Reverend Dr. Jonathan Walton, who is now the new dean of the Divinity School at Wake Forest University, and a trustee of Princeton Seminary. Before we turn to Dr. Walton's lecture, we're pleased to unveil a portrait of the Hansons, which will hang in the private dining room of the Mackay Center and will remind us all of the legacy of hospitality and community that the Hansons represent. Dr. Walton was instrumental in the commissioning of this portrait and before we unveil it, I'd like to invite him to come and say a few words about the Hansons.
1: About a year ago when I sit here to announce that we would commission this portrait, I said that for all beautiful and all problematic and troublesome that one might say about this institution. Institutions are comprised by individuals. And of these people, of these individuals, we should never lose track. Particularly when it comes to those who always fought and struggled to make this place live up to its aspiration and sought and worked so hard to make sure that the reality of this institution aligned with the professions of the institution. That's Dr. Guy and Carrie Hansen. Their hospitality is known all over the world, whether it's hosting international students during the holidays, whether it's when we finish general exams, Mrs. Hanson showing up with a thermos full of not coffee, or whether it's Dr. Hansen taking young people and teaching them how to dress. There's so many of us in here tonight that are connected and aligned. We know each other. We know each other's stories. We know each other's children. Some of us, we've barely even met one another but yet we are united as siblings. I grew up in a faith tradition that taught the parenthood of God and the siblinghood of humanity. That is what the church is all about. Well, the Hansons made that possible because I have siblings and nieces and nephews and cousins that are all a part of the Hanson household. I could tell you story after story. I could tell you about a young girl, Marissa Choi, graduating from Boston University and, and Cecily and I hosting her graduation party at our home even though we weren't in town. And we just told the since we lived in what I like to call Harvard Public Housing, in Sparks House, we just told the directors of the house and the facilities crew that our family will be in town. Uh, And we're hosting a party for them, and so just make them and give them whatever accommodations you need. And it was the most beautiful image to see the face of the building manager who came up to me afterwards when I returned in town, after having hosted about a hundred Chinese Americans from the Bay Area. (laughs) That's when he looked at me and said, you have a beautiful family. (laughs) Or being at a conference, being at a conference and meeting a young man for the first time who I knew his whole life story and he knew my whole life story. And we grabbed each other and we hugged and we kissed and we were taking selfies and taking photos. And somebody came up to me afterwards and said, oh, I didn't know you knew Bert. And I regrettably and clunkily said, yeah, we got the same daddy. This is the world, Raquel, that we live in, black and white, gay and straight, older and younger, all connected by a common thread of humanity that was forged on Ross Stevenson place in the Hanson household. I would ask at this time if all of the Hanson children, and you know who you are, If you would please stand up just so that we can thank Ma and Pa together. It's our prayer, Mrs. Hansen, though we know you don't like pictures. we know you complained the whole time and you gave the artist hell. It's our hope and our appreciation for you doing this, that as this portrait hangs up in Makai, that it will serve as a reminder to subsequent generations, faculty and students alike, that we're called to set a beloved table of love, of compassion and care. And the differences that others would like to see divide us can be stitched together in a fabric and garment of destiny and love when we just dare to treat each other right.
0: painting is extraordinary but uh, they're here in the flesh which is even more beautiful We, we have don't you please stand for? It. We're fortunate to have the portrait artist, Joseph Daly, with us today. Joseph is an accomplished landscape and portrait artist. He studied at the School of Visual Arts in New York. This is not the first time that Joseph has helped us honor members of the Princeton Seminary family. Joseph recently painted a portrait of Muriel Van Orden Jennings, the first woman to attend Princeton Seminary. The finished product for that one is also spectacular. I encourage you to stop by the Women in Ministry room of the library to see it. I'd like to invite Joseph to say a few words about this beautiful portrait.
2: Uh, I'm Joseph Daly and I'm delighted to be here. Um, Muriel Jennings's unveiling was honestly one of the most uh, special moments of my career and uh, I'm delighted to be back tonight. Um, I had a beautiful experience also painting Uh, The Hansons, and I've been looking forward to tonight for months really. Um, Whenever I'm painting a portrait, obviously in the first place uh, the goal is to to get a good likeness of the person, a good physical likeness. Uh, But beyond that, the ultimate goal is to find a point of spiritual connection with the subject and to somehow bring that across in paint. Uh, And in this case, that point of connection was facilitated in a a pretty surprising way. So I'm going to try to honor Dr. and Mrs. Hansen uh, and express what this portrait meant to me by telling you about a couple that uh, I assume none of you have have ever met before, but just bear with me because it'll all come together. Um, My wife and I and her parents, um, we all live in upstate New York. And, but my wife's mother uh, is from Austria, and my wife's father grew up in northern Vermont, but in uh, his late teens and early 20s, he lived and worked in Austria for several years. That's where they met. And through a series of circumstances, when they moved together to America 26 years ago, it was with little more than the shirts on their backs. And the reason that they decided to settle in Binghamton, New York was because they had a close connection uh, with a couple who lived there, Mr. and Mrs. Gale. And Mr. and Mrs. Gale, they had first names, but I only ever heard them referred to as Mr. and Mrs. Gale. And Mr. and Mrs. Gale, they helped my wife's parents find a place to live when they didn't know where to go. And they gave my wife's father. Uh, a whole series of handyman jobs uh, in and around their house until he could establish himself uh, on his own uh, as a carpenter in the area. And Mr. and Mrs. Gale also had a small dedicated light room uh, in their home where a small group would come every week for Sunday worship. And by the time I moved to the Binghamton area, Mr. Gale had already passed on and Mrs. Gale was already in the early stages of dementia. So I never got to experience them uh, truly firsthand uh, or in full swing. But there was a whole circle of friends and acquaintances who had obviously been so profoundly impacted by Mr. and Mrs. Gale. And this was a couple who had had no natural children of their own but had mentored this whole circle of uh, friends and acquaintances who would talk about them and look up to them the way children talk about and look up to their own parents. And uh, if you know Dr. and Mrs. Hansen, that should probably start to ring a bell now. Uh, so ultimately, for me, All these stories that I heard about Mr. and Mrs. Gale over the years uh, prepared me for this portrait in a way by helping me form a picture of a type of working in creation that Dr. and Mrs. Hansen were still actively fulfilling. And my experience with Dr. and Mrs. Hansen um, essentially gave me a, a glimpse. It helped me witness firsthand what it can look like for a husband and wife to essentially dedicate their whole lives to trying to build up others uh, in the service of the Lord. So that was truly a gift for me. Uh, This this whole whole portrait was really a gift. Um, And I'm so grateful for it. Uh, I'm also especially grateful that I was asked to paint not just Dr. Hansen, but also Mrs. Hansen, together um, because it's so clear that they work together as a team. And uh, I like to think that my wife and I work together beautifully as a team, but we've only been married three years. And so it's it's always special to get to witness a couple who's been through everything together and has supported each other through it all and has supported others uh, through their marriage. Um, And as far as my experiences directly with the Hansons, uh, I can say that they were completely warm and hospitable. Their legendary hospitality was applied to my wife and I. Uh, They welcomed us into their home for the sittings. Uh, They fed us. They were completely generous with their time, and uh, we enjoyed every minute of it. Um, There's so much that I could say, but Uh, In the end, if I've done my job, then everything that I would have to say should already be in the painting. So I sincerely hope that I've painted a portrait that speaks for itself, and I'll just say for my part, thank you to Princeton Seminary and to everyone whose donations made this portrait possible, and especially thank you, Dr. and Mrs. Hansen. Uh, Maria and I were so happy to get to know you both and we wish you all the best.
0: Again, we are honored to have our trustee, the Reverend Dr. Jonathan Walton, deliver the 2019 Geddes W. Hansen Lecture. Dr. Walton received his MDiv and his PhD from Princeton Seminary. He is the newly appointed Dean of the Wake Forest University School of Divinity. He is also occupant of the Presidential Chair in Religion and Society and the Dean of Wake Chapel in Winston-Salem. He previously served as the Plumer Professor of Christian Morals and the Pusey Minister in the Memorial Church of Harvard University. Dr. Walton is a social ethicist. His first book was called Watch This. The Ethics and Aesthetics of Black Television. His latest book, just released last year, is entitled A Lens of Love, Reading the Bible in Its World for Our World. It explores the Bible from the perspective of the most vulnerable characters towards developing a Christian social ethic of radical inclusion and human affirmation. Dr. Walton is a tireless advocate for social justice and civil rights. He learned a great deal of this from his professor, mentor, and friend, Dr. Hansen. Would you please welcome
1: the Reverend Dr. Jonathan Walton. It is indeed a privilege and a pleasure to be able to share with you on this special night. I really feel like anything I have to say right now is so anticlimactic. (laughs) Uh, Being here is always a special treat, being home, being at this place with so many, as I said, siblings, and people who made my existence possible in so many ways, not just the Hansons. I'm looking at you, Peter Paris. I'm looking at you, Mark Taylor. Even the subject matter of much of my talk tonight, Henry Ward Beecher, I was first introduced to in the class of Professor Moorhead. And so therefore, it's a pleasure, and I'm shaking in my boots that you're here. You're not supposed to be here. to all of my fellow trustees, faculty, staff, and all of those, good to see you, Brother Peter, and all of those people who are here who make this place run. That includes those like the Kirk family, those who work in custodial service, and Amy Ellen, those who clean up after us, all of the invisible labor that makes incredible events like this possible. We know that hands that serve are as valuable as lips that pray. And so we thank God for all of them. Thank you, President Barnes, for giving me this opportunity. The topic of my uh, lecture tonight is uh, particularly directed to many of our seminarians, our students, who are here tonight. The title is How to Become a Famous Preacher. (laughs) How to Become a Famous Preacher. The subtitle would be Henry Ward Beecher and the Ethics of Moral Suasion and Personal Piety. A few years ago, I had the honor of giving the Dahl Lecture on Religion and Money across the street at Princeton University. The title of my lecture that day was The Cultural Appeal of the Health and Wealth Gospel in the USA. I had spent the previous 45 minutes tracing the history of the Word of Faith movement, a charismatic offshoot of Pentecostalism, most associated with the prosperity gospel. Along with well coiffed televangelists like Joel Osteen and Jesse Duplantis, many of these preachers are known for their immaculate, sizable worship centers, luxury automobiles, and even private jets. At the conclusion of my lecture, a well-dressed man in the audience stood up and he posed a question. He said, what does all this obsession with money, new buildings and cars have to do with faith in God? A look of bewilderment was written all over his face for it was evident that he found such spiritual expressions as foreign as the thought of Snoop Dogg leading the Boston Pops. I knew this to be true about this man because I knew the distinguished gentleman who posed the question. He was a regular attendee of the Memorial Church at Harvard University, where I then served as the PuC minister. He was a generous friend who just happened to be in Princeton, New Jersey that day, and he elected to come learn about my research interests. And like many at Mem Church, he was a part of a precious crew of congregants who were much more familiar with antiques, operas, and organs than their ministers' appreciation of playing hoops, hip hop, and sermonic hooping. It was this intimate knowledge of the questioner that led to my reflexive response to his question. What does money, new building, and cars have to do with faith in God? I repeated, well, what does a 22 carat organ have to do with faith in God? Here I was referring to the Memorial Church's world-class organ that Harvard had just installed a few years before. Immediately, I regretted my response for its combative tone, if not for the cultural irony that it exposed. This encounter at Princeton marked the moment in my research and reflections about the prosperity gospel in America. It's the moment that my work took a decided turn. Up to this point, my writings were more aligned with prevailing accounts. This was true in my first book and several subsequent essays. The academic consensus traces the prosperity gospel through Pentecostalism in general and the post-war healing revivals in particular. The prosperity gospel then largely became the domain of working class whites and more charismatically inclined communities of color, according to this narrative. Health and wealth theologies developed on the margins rather than within the mainstream of what we typically define, Brother Heath, as American religion. that some scholars include 19th century new thought metaphysics and other spiritualist forms of religious expression as contributing elements of the prosperity gospel does not disrupt this narrative. As a matter of fact, it underscores the prevailing sense that a concern with conspicuous displays of health and wealth belong to those on the religious periphery of American society. According to this view, the values of the prosperity gospel deviate from the religious mainstream. Health and wealth theologies constitute an aberration of Christianity in the United States. Well, why does this matter? For one, it underscores Jesus's words in the Gospel of Matthew. We can often see the speck in another's eye without considering the plank in our own eye. My friends question, A healthy and wealthy white male New Englander reveals how many of us who find the materialistic features of the prosperity gospel problematic are unable to see how all communities of faith distinguish themselves with aesthetic accoutrements. Communities gather and employ material resources as markers of values and symbols of worth. Churches are not immune. It's what Pierre Bourdieu refers to as distinction. For some congregants, it includes wearing designer clothes, seeing their congregation on television, and knowledge that their pastor drives a car worthy of celebrities or corporate executives. Other congregations might spend millions more in renovations to meet safety and accessibility regulations in order to maintain the traditional outward appearance of a previous century. One congregation's self-indulgent pastoral private jet is another congregation's Tiffany windows. One pastor's custom-made three-piece suit and Rolex watch is another hand-stitched, environmentally-friendly vestment. Each of these examples confers social status within a given community. One community's bishop is another community's trustee. Second, the sort of conceptual blind spots mentioned above contributes to epistemological and cultural biases in the study of American religion. What we like to consider critical scholarship on religion too often devolves into polemical commentary masquerading as objective analysis when engaging minoritized communities. As Robert Orsi puts it so eloquently, the academic study of religion has been organized around distinct and identifiable set of moral judgments and values that are most often explicit and commonly evident more in convention and and scholarly than in precept. In other words, scholars already work from the default categories of good and bad religion when they enter into analysis. Religions that adhere to established and prevailing social mores, inspire and appear to promote peace and liberal democratic values, those are deemed as true and good. Readily identifiable forms of religious violence, apparent greed, and overt exclusion based on religious, ethnic, or sexual identity are framed as perverse or bad religion. Therefore, for both historians and ethicists, in this view, conservative Christian fundamentalists debase true Christianity and have little to teach us about American religion other than negative examples of belief. We opt to focus on liberal Protestants and social justice activity of women's suffrage and civil rights. Domestic terrorists who commit mass murder in the name of an angry God desecrate religion. Hence, we offer more tolerant counterexamples that reflect what we want to call real religion or in our case, real Christianity. Or whatever we deem culturally tolerable at the moment. Now my aim here, friends, is not to suggest that we should refrain from any judgment of religious belief. To the contrary, as a social ethicist, my primary task is to consider the good, the right, the just, and the fitting responses to the moral problems that we face. Such judgments, however, must be historically and culturally contingent and specific. When we consider the ways that societies are structured in hierarchies and dominance, not only must we consider the cultural air that we breathe, but the ways people make choices under conditions not of their own choosing. For instance, certain prosperity theologies promote it as a presumed response to white male supremacy, though possibly troublesome for a myriad of other reasons. These prosperity theologies should not be conflated with the theology of health and wealth proponents who explicitly condone such racial and gender hierarchies. Similarly, certain liberal Protestant theologies included those promoted with progressive theological institutions of which I have graduated and I have taught, do not inoculate Progressive Christians from practices that reinforce social stratification and injustice. Part of the reason that so many of us are here today to honor Dr. and Mrs. Hanson is because when this institution, as well as its curriculum, didn't feel particularly affirming and inclusive, we had the Hanson House. Ask the kid from the historically black college. Talk to the Asian-American Presbyterian from the left coast who had to keep telling people that the part of China he was from is also called San Francisco. (laughs) Consult the queer kid who knew he had a call on his life, but for a long time was deemed a problem for the entire denomination. Ask that white Southwesterner that was made to feel more like an okey than reformed in Stuart Hall. Inquire of the black woman, also known as Baby Child, who never saw herself teaching a class or on a syllabus while both an MDiv and doctoral student. and talk to the Indian or the African international student who felt isolated and alone other than their holiday meals at the Hanson dinner table. I say this not to besperch my beloved institution, but to make an important point about religious life in America. All expressions of religion, like all people, are given to kindness and compassion as well as greed and gluttony. But when it comes to the dividing line between acceptable and pathological, those groups who have been alienated historically from the sources of social power tend to be categorized as problem people rather than people with problems. That is how someone who invests in a $6 million orchid can see that as wholly acceptable and see pathological the community that wants to build a new worship center. So when it comes to the prosperity gospel, now that I've set the theoretical frame for you, The book that I'm now completing during my sabbatical aims to name this theoretical bias by locating health and wealth theologies within more mainstream, quote unquote, contexts of American society and American religious history. The idea that God wants us all to be rich and prosper both promotes and reflects the ideals of the broader culture past and present. Images of the United States as a land of infinite opportunity predates the nation's founding. Colonial social commentary is replete with moralistic lessons concerning self-mastery and upward mobility. Consider Benjamin Franklin's 1748, Advice to the Young Tradesman. Here, the American founding father concludes, in short, the way to wealth, if you desire it, is as plain as the way to the market. It depends chiefly on two words, industry and frugality, i.e. waste neither time nor money, but make the best use of both. He that gets all he can honestly and saves all he gets, except for necessary expenses, will certainly become rich, end quote. Now that Franklin, a member of the ruling elite, offers such advice at a moment where fewer than 500 men in five colonial cities controlled commerce, shipping, and manufacturing along the eastern seaboard undercuts his simple principles of individual accomplishment. But today, however, I want to focus on another prominent figure of American religious history, 19th century clergyman, Henry Ward Beecher. Beecher was the son of new school Presbyterian Lyman Beecher. And believe it or not, he was the more famous younger brother of novelist Harriet Beecher Stowe, author of Uncle Tom's Cabin. There's a reason that historian Debbie Applegate refers to Beecher as the most famous man in America, known for his expensive tastes in velvet jackets, jewelry, fine meals, multiple homes, and European department stores. Beecher was the template for today's famous celebrity clergy. And if anybody here has aspirations of leaving this institution and becoming a famous preacher, you will do well to study the religious approach and social theory of the man most deemed the most well-known clergy of the 19th century. First, let me offer an important consideration about Beecher's context. Is everybody with me? Beautiful. You awake, Doc? Good. All right. Beecher's life and context, his ministry, life and ministry, spanned a period of revolutionary social change in American society. Born in 1813, his ministry covered the late 1830s until his death in 1887. This period witnessed the expansion of the Industrial Revolution, a move from an agrarian to an urban economy, a shift from Puritan Calvinism to a progressive romanticism, the rise of the abolitionist movement, the American Civil War, which broke the yoke of slavery, as well as the Reconstruction era that first envisioned and then quickly dashed the dreams of a multiracial democracy. Historians describe this this as the mid-Victorian era, an age of anxiety amidst great change. The Jacksonian spirit animated and exhilarated white men to take the reins of their destiny. Like the conclusion of William Ernest Henley's 19th century poem Invictus, white men reshaped American democracy. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. This is one of the reasons that American evangelical Christians transitioned from a Calvinist emphasis on total depravity, predestined damnation, and ultimate divine authority in the 19th century. Such theological tenets belied the optimism and the developmental ethos of the age. More open theological frameworks that gave greater weight to the individual rose to the fore. And because, like his father, like his father Lyman, Henry embraced the new school theology of Presbyterianism, many viewed him as theologically progressive. And I guess he was. He followed Lyman Beecher out west, intent on igniting the flames of revivalism. Charles Hodge and Princeton Seminary be damned. But through these theological controversies, Beecher also took to heart some important lessons that I would offer you if you're interested in becoming a famous preacher. Lesson one, avoid taking sides on pressing social issues. (laughs) Henry Ward Beecher learned this early in regards to the rise of abolitionists in America. In the 1830s, Lyman Beecher's Lane Seminary lost a critical mass of students over the slavery issue. Of course, the entire Beecher family opposed slavery, want to be clear, they opposed slavery. But more than Lyman's opposition to slavery, he cherished social order. That southerners sympathetic to the slave-holding states were strong supporters of his seminary may also have had something to do with his love of order. <laughs> Nevertheless, both the father and the son believed in the ethic of moral suasion. Focused passion on the redeeming power of Christ and matters of social reform will ultimately follow. This is an ethic that evangelical Christian communities, from Billy Graham revivals to the National Baptist Convention under the leadership of J.H. Jackson, Dr. Paris, it's an ethic that they've all adopted. Christ should be primary and social reform secondary. Many students, however, at Lane Seminary saw the two as equal and inextricable. The Board of Trustees felt otherwise. And in 1834, the trustees of Lane Seminary voted to abolish all student groups and societies not directly tied to the curriculum. This ban included the anti-slavery society and a growing number of abolitionists led by a young Theodore Weld, future husband of famed abolitionist and women's rights activist, Angela Grimke. Now historian Clifford Clark in an old book traces this incident to the development of young Henry Ward Beecher's ultimate tactic of triangulation. Throughout his career Beecher became known for triangulating opposing sides on a controversial social issue in order to imagine that he's carved out his own unique space in the middle. For instance, in the debate over slavery, Beecher condemned slavery for what he framed as the intemperance on both sides. Writing in The Independent in 1850, Beecher decried against slavery in the South for betraying Victorian Christian values. Free labor dishonors work, and the characteristic violence of slavery, physical and sexual, undermined Christian virtue. At the same time, Beecher also denounced the abolitionists, like William Lloyd Garrison and Wendell Phillips. He framed abolitionists, like he framed labor union activists, as radicals and purveyors of violence. Their efforts, Beecher believed, threatened social stability and Christian order according to his deeply held Victorian worldview. In fact, in the run-up to the Civil War, when Beecher shared the platform with abolitionists like Garrison and even let them speak in his Plymouth church, he was always quick to introduce them by disassociating himself with qualifications like, I defend their freedom to speak if not their views by taking this approach as placing himself above the fray. One might argue that Beecher is guilty of a fallacy of false equivalence. Some, as many did in his age, including his own siblings at time, may accuse him of stating that there are many fine people on every side. We can also question what it means for the most vulnerable in our society when we privilege order over justice. But if one is concerned with keeping the sort of public needed for mass acclaim, these may seem like insignificant compromises. As W.E.B. Du Bois described Booker T. Washington, to achieve this sort of cultural fame is to be at thorough oneness with one's age. End quote. So that's the first lesson. Don't take a side on pressing social issues. Lesson two, focus on individual piety and the social benefits of acquisition. This is another feature of Beecher's career that helped to propel him to cultural fame. As stated earlier, much of Beecher's liberal theology and conservative social theory reflect the period of his formation. Moral values of thrift, sobriety, and hard work were the defining ethical features of the agrarian Victorian age. Though with the expansion of the railroad and increased urbanization disrupting local communities, such small town virtues were becoming increasingly out of sync with economic realities. He witnessed this early in his ministry out west at the Second Presbyterian Church in Indianapolis. People felt like they were losing control, even as growing populations were also beginning to appreciate the material benefits and, of economic development that was associated with urbanization. So we're scared, but we like it. From rural to urban, from peasant to proletariat, from uncivilized to reformed and civilized, the developmental social theories of the mid-century, including what would become a budding social Darwinism, both disrupted the familiar and authorized upward aspirations. Beecher carved out his distinctive form of piety fit for this moment. For instance, by focusing on traditional virtues and values of the Victorian age, he could help people feel in control. Abolitionism, labor disputes, changing economies, seizing of land for railroads, there's no need to be overly consumed with such topics. Speculators and city slickers of the urban areas, they are not the moral examples. As he wrote in 1866 in a book entitled Royal Truths, If young men want to go make a fortune, go to sea, we need sailors. Go out to work, we need field hands. Go into the shop, we need mechanics. Beecher channeled the changing anxiety of his age and of the great Babylon of New York City, where he was a resident. And he encouraged individuals to focus on success from the sweat of their brow. This is one area where both the capitalists and the labor, the craftsman and the apprentice, the landowner and the field hand could agree. Piety is your path to prosperity. Now this left one problem for Beecher. There's one value that was often omitted from the list of Victorian virtues increasingly in the 19th century, Professor Moorhead, Remember Franklin? It's benevolence, it's our responsibility to reinvest the sweat of our brow and distribute such wealth for the good of society like Henry's father Lyman always did. But this virtue was becoming increasingly out of sync with an emerging leisure class that distinguished their class status, not by moral virtue, but by conspicuous consumption. Luxury goods. Beecher's congregation at the Plymouth Church didn't want to hear anything about selling all they had and giving it to the poor. Nor was Beecher himself inclined to forfeit his multiple properties, vast international book collection, and his fine wares. But in an 1863 article, Be Generous of Beauty, Beecher thread a needle. This is what he wrote. Listen to this. This is interesting. Really interesting to me. Maybe not to you. It would be. <laughs> Beecher writes this. Can anything be more charming than to see a child's face set between two pickets, like a sweet picture in a frame, wistfully looking at beds of flowers, vines, and trees? What's the picture that Beecher is painting here? He's painting a picture of a child looking on, the, looking on at the exterior of a beautiful home from outside of the gate. It's what Beecher came to call indirect philanthropy, the creation of beauty. When captains of industry and the social elite build better homes and gardens, they are literally providing inspiration to the lower classes. This inspiration should lead to moral cultivation, which in turn benefits the entire society. Therefore, Beecher's multiple houses and fancy clothes were not simply indulgences. They were symbolic acts of charity. They were outward symbols of an inner piety. Please remember this the next time you see your favorite celebrity preacher on Instagram with a pair of Yeezy tennis shoes or a $15,000 watch. Like Beecher, he or she is giving themselves to the community. (laughs) So these are just a few of the signs my friends, of how one might become a famous preacher. But before I leave here, I wanna note something. It's my moral obligation just to simply say that fame and success are not necessarily the same thing. You can be famous and successful indeed, but you can also be successful and not necessarily famous. In the words of Maya Angelou, success is liking yourself, liking what you do, and liking how you do it. Fortunately, we didn't need, and we don't need Maya Angelou. We had Dr. and Mrs. Hanson. They taught so many of us in this room to never confuse celebrity and success Fame, celebrity, and notoriety are qualitatively different moral and ethical categories than success, example, and integrity. They showed me what ministry was all about in ways that I'm just starting to understand. It's not about the sermons we preach. It's about the people we serve. It's not about the size of the crowd, it's about the sincerity, sincerity of our contact with one another. And ministry is not about how recognizable we are in public, but how rather, how reliable we are in private. These are the lessons Dr. Mrs. Hanson taught so many of us. These are the lessons we ought to remember. And finally, one last lesson I want to leave you that I learned from Dr. Hansen. During my time in seminary, President Barnes, I uh, worked at the Hansen House as fitting. I did carpentry work. Dr. Hansen's who taught me how to use a screwdriver and a saw. I'm a kid from Atlanta, I didn't know any of that. But, Dr. Hansen was building a deck and working on other projects. And if I remember correctly, Mrs. Hansen, I think he had cut his hand and you wouldn't let him touch tools anymore. (laughs) So therefore they hired a seminarian. Uh, I guess the general counsel might have a problem with that. Erase that from the record. Uh, (laughs) But, um, and so, I used to go over and we built a deck on the back of the house. I think it's still kind of half built. (laughs) And we built a deck on the front of the house and we did other projects around the house. And there were two phrases that Doc always had and he always said. The first phrase was this, measure twice, cut once. (laughs) Measure twice, cut once. I'm going somewhere with this. (laughs) Measure twice, cut once. The second phrase he would always say seemed to cut against his first phrase. And it was this, a man on a galloping horse. That's what he would say, a man on a galloping horse. What does that mean? Well, if something was a little off, if something wasn't quite right, Doc would say, if a man on a galloping horse rode by, he couldn't tell the difference. So, Doc, this board is a little bit off. A man on a galloping horse. <laughs> These colors, you sure this match? A man on a galloping horse. Doc, I remember those in my ministry. And that's what I want to remind and to encourage any young seminarian here that wants to be a famous preacher. I want you to remember and invert, a man on a galloping horse. Because if a man on a galloping horse rides by and can't tell the difference between you and the other cultural celebrities of our age, if a man on a galloping horse rides by and can't tell the difference between your integrity and just another business executive in your city, if a man on a galloping horse rides by, and you don't have anything unique to contribute to the moral framework of your society, go back and measure twice.